Hello, everybody, and welcome to the CC Delco podcast. My name is Taylor McCahan, and this is a bi-weekly podcast where we aim to go deeper than we can on a Sunday morning on a wide variety of topics. Today's episode is with Pastor Bob Guglione and Anna Walker-Roberts, our small groups and extension campus director. And today they're going to be talking about leadership. Uh, this is especially important in a tumultuous time like today where no one is trusting leaders. Um, it's really hard to get a biblical understanding of leadership demonstrated in culture today. So we really encourage you listen to this one and be blessed. Thanks for being here, Pastor Bob. Um, So one of your side interests that I have sort of been able to learn about you is that you love leadership. You have a whole section of books in your office on leadership and are regularly quoting things about leadership. And we've been in this really interesting time as a culture and as a country with everything with the COVID pandemic and racial injustice. And people are looking for leaders. You know, we're looking for people to to lead us. Can you just talk up maybe a little bit about what you've been thinking about leadership in this time? Yeah. So someone said a long time ago, um, never waste a crisis. And uh, what mm. they were saying is, you know, leadership's daily. You know, what leaders do um, is they have vision. Um, they build strategy and then they build teams. Probably 90% of leadership is around people, keeping people, you know, engaged in the vision, um, paying them well, um, motivating them, celebrating with them, correcting them. Uh, so much of it is around people. But, you know, my interest in leadership started when I was, you know, in my teens. Uh, so I love sports. I play sports all day. I followed sports. But I was, I think I was somewhat strange in that I would go to a Major League Baseball game. And I would enjoy the game, but a side interest of mine is how did all this get put together? Who, how do the lights come on? How do the players get paid? Like even at a young age. So I've always been attracted to leadership and you're right. I read a lot about it. Uh, so I'm not as good at it as I am at following it. It's (laughs) kind of like some guys can just hit home runs. Some guys are just great leaders. So, uh, but I've always been fascinated. As a follower, because you ready for this, we all crave leadership. Think about in your heart the times you've been well-led. You just feel so good. Whether it was the President of the United States who felt like Dad was in the Oval Office or maybe a teacher, a coach. You just go home and you feel right in your skin because somebody led you well. So that's more my fascination with leadership than anything else. Yeah, it's been interesting being kind of involved in the behind the scenes things that have been happening at CC Delco during the pandemic. And you've had to lead through a pretty challenging time where, you know, the church wasn't gathering in person. We switched over to being online. You were fascinated with helping figure out all of the behind the scenes, how to turn our sanctuary into a live streaming place and all of that. Do you have any kind of thoughts and reflections coming out? I know we're not like out, out of this time of a pandemic, but we have started meeting again as a group. Like what are some of the things you've taken away from leading our church through that? So I'll be honest, you know, early I sulked, you know, because like leadership is daily. So even in, um, we'll say normal times, peace time, whatever you want to call it, it's a grind. 
you know, somebody coined the phrase, it's like pushing an elephant upstairs. It's like swimming through peanut butter. So daily leadership's hard, mainly because nothing's static. It's like ducks in a shooting gallery. When one duck goes down, another comes up. So the daily grind of leadership is hard enough. Um, And then the obstacles that you face are hard enough. When a pandemic comes or some of the racial tension we've seen, wow, that's that just comes sideways and you're just, you know, wow. So I'll admit, um, I sulked early on. Now, I had COVID. So for three weeks, I I was woozy, to say the least. And then you kind of get your sea legs um, and you're like, okay, uh, this is the ham we're dealt. Maybe I don't agree how things are being handled. Maybe I want it to go away. It's not going to go away. So as a leader, you have to look at the situation. You have to say, okay, um, we got to get in there. We got to figure this out. Yeah. Yeah. You, um, you've talked a little bit about sort of this difference in experts and leaders and that currently in our culture, when I turn on the news or I'm on social media, I'm seeing all these different things that are like from an expert in this field, an expert in that field. And really with social media, I know that I can find an expert that's saying anything that I want them to be saying to like back up what I personally believe. Um, but what do you feel like is maybe the difference in, people who are like leading culture and then someone who is an expert. Yeah. So think about it. Here's what a leader does. A leader basically takes all the information and makes a decision. That decision will be unpopular with some and popular with others. The classic leadership axiom is, you know, you're disappointing people at a rate they can stand. Right. So, and, and, and you're making it for the whole the common good, which means some people will be unhappy uh, at different times. But generally, there will be a feeling of momentum. Generally, there'll be a feeling of we're moving forward, right? That's leadership. I think one of the problems you're seeing in culture with COVID is the people that have to make decisions are politicians. And I don't know how much our um, audience knows this. I only know it because I read in the political area. And I know politicians. Uh, the average politician spends between six to eight hours of his or her workday uh, either raising money or moving towards re-election. That's a lot of time. So most of their staff is doing the legwork while they're trying to get re-elected. I don't think the founding fathers, for all their genius, knew this would become a popularity contest. So what you're finding is you have politicians who are thrust into leadership right now who never signed up for this. They signed up to constantly just get reelected. And I'm not slighting them that they're not doing work, but they're not doing this work, They, they right? So in our sphere of influence, um, we did sign up for this. We did sign up to lead and make people's lives better, etc. So I think the difference is, you know, experts run in one field. So a medical expert runs in one field. He's designed or his job is to give you the data. You then have to take that data, parse it and say, okay, now in our community, how do we take that data and run with it? 
Yeah, I can see that being a very clear delineation that as a leader, you kind of have to be taking in information from a lot of different fields. You mentioned something about the idea of like leaders kind of having this get up and go like I'm going to take people to a place. I was reading in a Wendell Berry book earlier this year. And uh, one of the quotes he has is he says, we sometimes think that all forward motion is progress, (laughs) but you could be going in a forward motion that really wasn't progressing in any way. And I wonder how in sort of the time that we're in, we think about leaders being people who are taking us forward. How do we know where they're going? Like, like whose bandwagon are we jumping on? And how do you kind of discern what leaders you might want to follow? I think most leadership is daily, systemic, over time. I don't think anybody wants to follow the swashbuckler who's betting the farm. If you bet the farm, you can lose the farm. I don't think anybody wants to follow that. I think vision is generally clear. I think it can be felt. I've been in places where I can feel vision before anybody opens their mouth. Uh, A place is clean. Signage is clear. Um, It's well lit. The air conditioner heat is at the right level. Those are all leadership uh, traits that that are systemic in an organization. So uh, I think those are the leaders we generally follow, not the person who's knee-jerk or out of left field. Um, But really, there's just a continuous. That's why brands work, right? Starbucks gives you, they deliver every day on, yeah, I have the coffee sitting right here. You you get the brand. Look, there might be a better coffee house down the street, but Starbucks will deliver to you their brand because they've done it over time. They can be trusted. They're not knee-jerk. And I think those are the leaders we want to follow. You talked a few weeks ago in one of your sermons about Nehemiah and how his response, um, he, he sort of has a career change, I guess, is sort of one of the pivoting points in the book of Nehemiah, that he goes from being a cupbearer to being a wall builder. And in, in the gap between doing those things, he spends some time weeping before he goes out to do this leading that he's going to do. Can you talk a little bit about that response and why you think that's in the Bible that we see this guy who's a leader crying? Yeah, see, uh, people say, can are leaders born or are they made? I think it's both. I think Nehemiah was a born leader. That's how he became cupbearer. That's a big position in that day that was second to the king. He was doing a lot of the administrative work, vision-oriented such. He had, He's a Jew, but he's never been to Israel. He was born in captivity, so he's in Persia. But there's a time when you're going to be thrust in the leadership. You know, Esther, you, you were born for such a time as this. And so this man, Hananiah, comes and says, uh, have you, you know, Nehemiah says, how's Jerusalem? He said, oh, it's in ruins. It's terrible. And I, I think the seeds of leadership are born from discontent. Nehemiah hears this for the first time, and he's thinking, wow, God had a vision for Israel. You know, a, a dream that he gave to Abraham that they would become a great nation and all the nations of the world would be blessed. How could the nations of the world be blessed if Jerusalem's in ruins? And so, so the back work of leadership happens way before you see a leader where his heart is broken. There's holy discontent. And Nehemiah chapter one talks about how he prays, he fasts. All the pre work is done to where he believes not only does something have to be done, but God's going to use him because in his prayer, he said, God, you know, how will I approach this man 
Artaxerxes, the king. He knows God's going to use him. He knows he was born for such a time as this. So a lot of leadership, there's a lot of pre-work that's done before you ever see a leader take a step. He was a natural born leader. God is arousing that leadership in him and using leadership in the Persian court for such a time as this. Moses, right? So much of Moses' leadership was miraculous and and God-given, but there was a reason he was raised in Fowler's house. He saw complex systems run so that when he can lead millions of people out, he had the intellect. So God kind of takes a natural gift. He takes things learned. He takes a holy discontent. He puts it all together. And then you're thrust into a leadership capacity. So you talked a little bit about this pre-work. So I enjoy leading. And as I'm looking to grow as a leader, um, this pre-work that Nehemiah is doing is prayer and fasting. and, And I think we can tell he's obviously probably spent time with the scriptures as well as a Jewish man. So Nehemiah, being a Jewish man, he's doing this pre-work. He's probably familiar with scriptures. He is praying and fasting. I think it says he spends like four months praying and fasting. Is fasting a practice that's ancient? Should we still do it? Kind of, can you explain what fasting is? Well, Jesus said, when you fast, when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites. So uh, it's something that was biblical, but obviously man got in the middle and it got, you know, weird or whatever you want to call it. We certainly don't fast to get what we want. I I see people, I don't think people write books like this, but I think people that read the books think, well, if I fast, I'll get the dream job I want or something like that. Uh, You know as well as I know that, that the flesh has to be suppressed. And one of the ways to hear clearer from God is to put the flesh under. So Jesus, before he launched in his ministry, did a 40-day fast. Uh, so I think Nehemiah, being Jewish, probably had wonderful parents growing up in exile, realized that this ancient practice was very important and realized that the job was way beyond his ability. I think that's a key factor. One of the traps we fall into is we don't need to pray or fast because I could do this myself. And there's some things you can do yourself, right? So I don't think God needs to drop a bundle of money on your door every day. You can go to work. But then there are tasks that are way beyond us. In Nehemiah, we see that the uh, Jewish people are in Babylonian exile. And you mentioned when you were teaching on this that they had been an agrarian people. They go into exile. Many of them are being exposed to medicine and other career paths. And some of them kind of like the comfortability of living in this Persian culture. And when Nehemiah does lead people out to go rebuild the wall, a lot of the Jewish people don't come uh, because they are satisfied or comfortable where they're at. Can you talk about maybe for us? I mean, you and I live pretty comfortable lives. Like we're sitting here in a church on the main line. Um, you know, what does that mean for us, this idea of being comfortable? Yeah. So I think for a lot of the Jews, they figured out because they had to in exile that worshiping God wasn't about time or place or space. Jesus brought that out to the Samaritan woman. It's not on this mountain or the temple where God will be worshiped. You can worship God in spirit and truth. One of the, the two things that came out of the captivity were the synagogue. You think about it, they have no temple. So they come up with a meeting place. The synagogue is really a Greek term. 
but it's just a meeting space. And they realized, wow, we can meet in this place. And then prayer became important. Daniel would look towards Jerusalem. So they realized, wow, we can flourish in a foreign land. So if we're comfortable here and if we have the law of God and we can pray and meet in a synagogue, why in the world would we go back to Jerusalem? I often think about if I were in England, would I have ever come to America? I don't think so. Why would I come to a place with mosquitoes and... Um, I love that the first thing yeah. you list is mosquitoes. <laughs> Do they not have mosquitoes yeah, in Britain? I don't know. Well, <laughs> but they didn't have taverns maybe in America or fancy clothes or cobblestone streets. You're like and, pioneering. Yeah, kind of yeah, yeah. yeah pioneering is hard. It, it, you know, it's romanticized now. But think about it. Why would you leave Babylon with hanging gardens and beer and, you know, a thousand comforts to go to a place that is uh, barren and and really in a lot of devastation. So why do you think Nehemiah did that? And how was he able to get people on board? Probably a lot of people who are leading anything right now, whether it's a business, a church, their family are struggling with like, we are doing this hard thing, like going into school in the fall and what will that look like? And just this whole year, how do you do that? Vision and calling, right? So I, I was able to go to a conference in Northern California, in the Pebble Beach area, Monterey. And there's a friend of mine who pastors in North Philadelphia. So when I got back, I said, how in the world did you ever leave that area to come here? And he said, calling. Hmm. For Nehemiah, it was the vision that God gave Abraham. This would be a great nation. So, you know, it's vision, it's calling. Uh, you would never in your natural mind go. And that's why that pre-work is so, so valuable. I think sometimes uh, people who are new to the Christian faith or become Christians as adults and they're not exposed to sort of all these Old Testament stories and basic spiritual practices and in children's church or something like that might hear things like having a quiet time, fasting, prayer, um, calling, stuff like that, and feel like, what are these words that people keep using in Christianity? And like, how do I discern that or do that? Um, it, it can seem mysterious, but I think it, it's a pretty basic thing. So could you talk a little bit about like, if I didn't know how to pray, how would I start praying? Like, what would I do? Well, prayer is just talking to God, right? The thief on the cross, Lord, remember me when you come into your glory. That's prayer. Now, obviously, prayer grows over time. Sometimes I wonder if it grows too religious. Hmm. Uh, but everybody prays, I think, in every religion. Prayer is communication with God. The, the difference is knowing God. You know, Jesus said, uh, again, the Samaritan woman you know, there's coming a time we're not going to pray on this mountain or in Jerusalem. He said, but but salvation is of the Jews. In other words, like, you've got to pray to the right God. Uh, Jesus talked about if you pray in my name. Jesus talked about he who doubts and prays is like the the waves, right? It's like, how will that man receive anything from God? So it's being in right relationship with God. It's like me talking to my wife or children talking to a parent. Um... Jesus said, when you pray, 
say our father who art in heaven you have to know where you know who god is and you know he's our father and then it's that he wants to give you daily bread and there's confession of sin so prayer's not willy-nilly to a christian you know i think prayer and scripture go together so Nehemiah finally does get through this season of pre-work, and maybe he continues to do some of that as he's leading as well. But he moves on from that and does get into action, and he goes to rebuild the wall, and he's leading these people to do this difficult task. Can you talk about leading in that way? Yeah, so it's a textbook study on leadership. Even secular people have looked at it. The feat is astounding. Um the time that that wall was rebuilt, the mileage they had to go, the it, but but often overlooked is 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 a leadership trait that people suffer in, and that's leading up. He needed leave from his current job. He needed resources, money, uh, and he needed it from his present employer, who was the king of Persia, who had no interest in Jerusalem. Leading up is very important. There are always people above you who you need resources from and you need buy-in from. A lot of people don't do this well. Uh, Nehemiah understood this. He did it well. Uh, so you have to lead up. Then you have to lead sideways. You have to you have to get things from people who who don't report from you. Um, and then there's people you have to lead down to. You have to lead them well. So Nehemiah has a strategy. He has people, but then he has to lead them well. And again, it's just a textbook case in leadership. Do you think that all Christians should be trying to lead? Like, is that a universal thing? Or are some Christians meant to be supporters or followers? Like, when I'm reading the Bible, should I be reading these passages from the standpoint of, like, how do I learn to lead? I think leaders are born. Um, I think when you look in Scripture and it says, if any man desires to be a bishop, you know, or, or in church leadership, well, that means there's going to be certain, you know, he's he's able to lead his house well and apt to teach. There's, there's some kind of gifting. Romans 12 says, if you're given the gift of leadership, you should use lead with all diligence. So, so there is that natural gifting. Once you get past that natural gifting, we probably all lead somewhere. You know, a mom's a leader, a dad's a leader to that family. Uh, maybe in a school. There, uh, I don't think everybody's a leader per se, but I think we all lead somewhere. Uh, you look at Mary and Martha; they had different giftings, right? Mercy giftings. So, leaders can coalesce all the gifts, but we're all going to be thrust in the leadership of times, right? Um, there's going to be a time where you're going to be called to lead. You may not have that Romans 12 gift of leadership, but you may be thrust into something. Hmm. One of the things that I've read about Nehemiah and the rebuilding of the wall is that not only was he rebuilding the wall, but he was also rebuilding the people. Like the task of rebuilding the wall was rebuilding the people. Um, there's sort of this idea, I think, that leaders might have of, I need to do this for my people. Like, I need to set this up for them so when they come in, it's ready. Versus, I'm going to do this with my people. You started a church how many years ago? 27. 27 years ago. And you were kind of doing that, right? You were going from scratch to start a thing with this group of people. Can you talk about the difference in like doing things for them as a leader and doing things with them? 
Yeah, so one of the problems that every leader figures out sooner or later is that I'll bet you Moses will tell you it was easier to get the people out of Egypt than to get Egypt out of them. It was easier to rebuild the wall than rebuild the people. That's The rest of Nehemiah is about rebuilding the people. That is a difficult task, and and it's a soft task, right? You can't microwave character or faith or people growing. That's a lifelong process. Paul with the Corinthian church, same thing. So I, I, you know, I always say when we make decisions at our church, we're asking two questions: What's right for the person? And what's right for the people they're leading? Sometimes people come to me, Pastor Bob, I want to lead men's ministry. Okay, i got to look at them and say, okay, is that what God's called them to do? And if it's on their heart, I really want them to lead because then they'll fulfill their calling. But then i got to think about the followers. Does this person have the gift of leadership to so, so the followers will feel led? That's hard. <laughs> really hard because sometimes I have to tell someone no you can't lead because I value the followers um, sometimes I got to value the followers not the leader it's it's a daily struggle to say what's good for the individual and what's good for the whole and you know I think leadership's always going to rise and fall there one of the things that I was in a conversation with someone about recently obvi- obviously Ravi Zacharias has been a leader in the Christian realm and passed away this year. Tim Keller has pancreatic cancer and we're praying that he's healed from that. Um, there's kind of these cycles of leadership that we see with Christian leaders and authors and speakers and pastors. And they have an obligation, I feel, to sort of pass that down to somebody else and make sure that there are more leaders coming up. Can you t- speak a little bit to, you know, if I'm an older person that is in leadership, what is my role? And if I'm a younger person who wants to be a leader, what is my role in that? Yeah, succession has been talked about a lot in the evangelical church because we're starting to see the James Dobsons, the Charles Stanleys, the Bill Brights, the Robbie Zacharias, the Josh McDowell's. We're seeing this, you know, massive leadership uh, that arose probably late 70s to our time start to move away. And the strange thing is we don't necessarily see the replacement. So succession has been talked about for a long time. These big mega churches, these big mega ministries, who are they going to pass it down to? I look another way. Now, certainly I want to mentor younger people and see them grow. But I also have the knowledge that the eyes of the Lord are looking to and fro for who he might use. The leaders that are going to lead the church into the future, you probably don't even know who they are right now, but they're all leading right now. There's going to be a time for them. Something's going to thrust them into the national spotlight. Um, and, and, and maybe the national spotlight is something of the past. You have to remember media rose a lot of these people up. Billy Graham hit a vein with media. Um, a lot of these people, radio burst on the scene in the 80s. Uh, maybe these new leaders will come by a podcast, maybe through some new form of media. Maybe they'll come from other countries. But they're leading right now. We just don't know who they are. They're having great success. God will bump them up a little bit and we'll look around one day and say, wow, God really did replenish the leadership ranks. When Nehemiah was building the wall, 
uh, as we're kind of looking at this style of leadership, was he like down there chipping at rocks with the guys or was he kind of more of a planning person? Do we know what his role was in that? Yeah, I think all leaders are both, right? There's a time where you got to get your hand on the plow. If you're on the plow too much, you can't see the bigger picture. I think it's a fight in every leader. Most leaders are probably competent at a lot of the jobs they're asking people to do. That can be a struggle. So, but you can't be so far removed from people that you don't, that you can't get in there and and work with them. So I, I think it was a lot of both and. Leaders have to skew to the job only they can do. Nobody could get resources out of Art Xerxes but Nehemiah. Um, but I'm so, sure he could put a couple bricks in now and again. Probably. Yeah. So sometimes we read the Bible in such a way to sort of see ourselves as the characters and learn in this way. Okay, Nehemiah was a leader. What can I learn from that and how to lead? But we can also read the Bible thinking about what do I learn about God from this book or this passage or this character? As we kind of wrap up for today, what do you feel like you take away learning about God as maybe our ultimate leader from the book of Nehemiah? I think what I learned about God is that, first of all, God has the ultimate vision. He's the one who gave Abraham vision. Abraham had no vision for the nations. So we also have to remember God has a grander vision, and it's about people. He so loved the world, and we get to partner with him. That's the thing that will blow my mind until I get to heaven is that God uses us. He can use the angels. Um we see in Matthew 24, in the end of time, the angel's going to preach the everlasting gospel. I'm sure they're better preachers than we are. But the idea that God would bear with the human instrument, I mean, the Bible's fully written by man and fully written by God. That's a, that's a tall order for God, but he wants to partner with us. The other takeaway is that we all matter. Paul would talk about the church, you know, the, the eye and the, foot and the hand, we're, we're all part of a whole. You see that in the book of Nehemiah, right? One of the things we do is we skew to the main character. Oh, I need to be a Nehemiah. No. Uh, there's tremendous value on the people that built the wall. Uh, the same with Moses, right? They're, they're even mentioned by name, those who built the tabernacle. God used the craftsmen and the artisans. So every gift matters. God's all about the whole. Um... And God's all about everybody getting the credit, but he has the grander vision. Well, that is a wonderful place for us to wrap up this episode. Thank you so much for joining us today yeah. on the CC Delco podcast. Thanks. Thank you so much for listening. If you liked what you heard, head to ccdelco.com to stay up to date with all of our sermons, our resources, all the events that are going on at Calvary Chapel of Delaware County. We'll see you at our next episode and we pray that you're blessed this week.